the San Francisco Experience Podcast, brought to you by Jim Herlihy, independent commentary from a Silicon Valley perspective for a global audience, featuring newsmakers, thought leaders, and authors. Season 22, Episode 9, The Shadow Docket, in conversation with author Professor Stephen Vladek, University of Texas at Austin School of Law. Our guest is Steve Vladek, who holds the Charles Allen Wright Chair in Federal Courts at the University of Texas Law School. He's a nationally recognized expert on the federal courts, constitutional law, national security law, and military justice. He has argued cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He joins us from his office in Austin, Texas. Hello, Steve, and welcome to the show. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, my pleasure. And first of all, Steve, congratulations on the publication of your latest book, The Shadow Docket. And the full title of the book is The Shadow Docket, How the Supreme Court Uses Stealth Rulings to Amass Power and Undermine the Republic. It's a critically acclaimed book. It's a New York Times bestseller, and it sheds light on the inner workings of the U.S. Supreme Court. Steve, please take a few moments to tell us about your biography and your scholarly work. Sure. So I am, as you say, a law professor at the University of Texas, about to start my 18th year um, in the legal academy. I you know, have been interested really since before I even went to law school in sort of the structure of legal systems and basically how institutional structures actually shape the powers and the limits on the powers of judiciaries. It started actually when I was in college looking at that from the perspective of international criminal justice and war crimes tribunals, but I sort of gravitated more toward the U.S. side when I was in law school after 9-11, you know, the rise of military commissions at Guantanamo and everything that followed. And I started to pay more and more attention to the Supreme Court as an institution and was, Jim, frankly, quite surprised at how little time we spend talking about the court holistically um, versus, you know, the amount of ink that is spilled on, you know, the high profile individual substantive rulings the court hands down each term. And so I started doing more and more work on the sort of the more obscure side of the Supreme Court's docket, which is part of what led me to this book. Mm-hmm. And Steve, before we, we launch into our discussion, I noted that you you are a third generation lawyer, your grandmother, your father, and now you, three generations of uh, lawyers in the family. Thanksgiving must be, uh, Thanksgiving conversation must, must be quite lively in the Vladek household. Uh, it is, although I should say he would beat me up if I didn't clarify. It's actually my uncle, um, oh, your uncle. Who, and my aunt, who were the lawyers in that generation. My, my dad's the black sheep. I see. Um, but both of his parents were lawyers. My grandmother actually graduated from Columbia Law School in 1947. She argued a case in the Supreme Court in 1981. Oh. My uncle and my aunt are both very successful lawyers, so I had big shoes to fill. Well, congratulations. That's uh, quite a family history. Again, the title of your book... The shadow docket refers to the Supreme Court's ability to issue emergency rulings in exceptional circumstances. But the court's other better-known docket, the merits docket that's produced landmark constitutional decisions such as Brown v. Board of Education, Roe v. Wade, Dobbs v. Jackson, to cite but a few cases, is more widely known to the American public. Let's begin with a definition. What is the shadow docket? And why has it become so controversial? The shadow docket as the term 
was coined in 2015 by a Chicago law professor named Will Bode, basically as an umbrella catch-all to cover all of the decisions, all of the rulings the Supreme Court hands down that aren't those fancy, lengthy merits rulings that we're used to seeing after the court, you know, hears oral arguments after it's taken multiple rounds of briefing. And it turns out that by volume, you know, about 99% of the Supreme Court's output really is these unsigned and usually unexplained orders. Will's insight, which I've rather shamelessly appropriated, is that even though a lot of those orders are anodyne and, you know, not that impactful, um, a bunch of them actually are pretty important and pretty significant. And we don't really talk about them the same way we talk about the court's, you know, more visible merits decisions, even though some of these orders can be the difference between whether federal policies can or cannot be enforced, can be the difference between whether state COVID mitigation measures will or will not be blocked, can be the difference between, you know, whether states have to redraw their congressional district maps in advance of the next election cycle. And so, you know, one of the things that I really wanted to do in the book was to make accessible, not just to lawyers, but to everybody who's interested in the Supreme Court, a more holistic understanding of everything the Supreme Court does with the sort of thesis that the more we understand exactly how the Supreme Court functions in the aggregate, I think the better situated we are to understand how the court has come to play such a dominant role in so many of our contemporary social policy disputes and also how not necessarily consistent that contemporary role is with what the original understanding of the court's role was, with what the practice was for the better part of 125 years. And so I really, you know, even though a lot of the book is about recent events, I really sort of view the book, at least in the first instance, as also getting everyone on the same page and trying to understand exactly how the Supreme Court came to both be given and take as much power as it has today. Could we just take a few moments to talk about the history? Because I found the history that you recount in the opening chapters of the book to be fascinating. I didn't realize that until 1935, the Supreme Court didn't have its own building, that yep. it, sat in the, it sat in the old chambers of the, the Senate, number one. So that was a revelation to me. Number two, another revelation was the fact that until 1890, correct me if I'm wrong, the Supreme Court at that point, in that one year, I think they had 1,800 cases, and they had to all of those cases. There was subsequently a reform. The Congress gave more authority to the Supreme Court to be able to pick and choose among the, say, the 1,800 uh, cases that had been submitted to them, which ones they would hear. Tell us a little bit about that history and also the role of former President William Howard Taft, who also went on to serve as Chief Justice Taft. And apparently that was his greatest ambition in the world, not so much being President of the United States, but being Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Tell us a little bit about the history before we jump into the subject at hand. You know, the reality is that before the Civil War, the Supreme Court did very little. It decided maybe 35 to 40 cases a year, maybe sometimes in the 50s. It decided exactly the cases Congress told it to. It had no discretion over its docket. And, you know, what that meant, among other things, Jim, is that the Supreme Court wasn't that powerful. We, we may be loosely familiar with a couple of really big decisions from before the Civil War, but we can probably count them on one or two hands, mm -hmm. even though that's, you know, a 70-year period. 
What happens after the Civil War is federal law expands dramatically, and so federal judicial dockets expand with it, so that by the 1880s, the federal courts are just totally overwhelmed with cases, including the Supreme Court, which has no discretion to turn away appeals that are just not worth its time, right? Appeals that are, you know, absolutely meritless and that are, you know, small potato disputes between private parties. And so starting in 1891, Congress begins to address the problem, but at first it's really baby steps. And it's really Taft who comes along. He's one of the most well-known lawyers in the country Mm -hmm. in the late 19th century. He serves as you know, Solicitor General, the government's lawyer in the Supreme Court. He's a judge on the federal appeals court in Cincinnati. And this is all before, right, he becomes Teddy Roosevelt's vice president. Mm. And the sort of the whole sort of vibe of Taft's approach was how to make the courts more equal to the political branches, how to raise the stature of the courts. Mm -hmm. And so for Taft, this had a couple of planks, right? One plank was, you mentioned this already, getting the court physically out of the Capitol, Mm -hmm. because a court that was literally dependent upon Congress to turn the lights on (laughs) would not be a very powerful court. But the other was to give the justices much, much more control over their docket as a means of making the court more powerful. Because, you know, Taft's insight, which I think has turned out to be absolutely correct, whether you like it or not, is that when the justices can pick and choose their cases, Mm -hmm. they really can set their own agenda in ways that allow them to consolidate power that they would not have if they were simply sitting back and reacting to every single case that the parties wanted them to resolve. So, you know, Taft, even though he's viewed, I think, by a lot of folks as a fairly middling president, is actually probably the most important chief justice, maybe alongside John Marshall Hmm. in the Supreme Court's history, because he spearheads all of these reforms. He, you know, helps to write the 1925 legislation that radically transforms the court's docket. Mm -hmm. He helps to persuade Congress to allocate money for the fancy, ornate building that the Supreme Court has called home since 1935. And it's all, Jim, swirling around the same idea, which is these reforms will make the court more powerful. Let's move on to today and the the shadow docket. That's, uh, again, having that historic perspective I think is so important it was uh, it was just a great way to uh, for the book to open and really sort of sets the, the stage as to how we got to where we are today so again Steve tell us about the shadow docket as it as it has evolved today and you mentioned that that of course the term was coined by will Bode at uh, University of Chicago and so so tell us now again the Supreme Court has always has it not has always the ability to intervene on an emergency basis I mean we think of those uh, those 11th hour capital punishment cases where where the warden is what is about to throw the switch on the uh, the electric chair and just waiting to hear from the Supreme Court whether or not there's been a stay that was a, a major part of the emergency rulings of the Supreme Court in the past was it not so yes and no I mean the you know the shadow docket is sort of two different things, right? I mean, one of it really is the certiorari stuff that we were just talking about. The The emergency relief part of this is something that really changes a lot starting in the late 1970s and early 1980s. So, you know, the court had always had this facility for dealing with emergencies. And just, just to be clear about what we mean, 
right? Um, an emergency in this context is a lower court ruling that a party wants to appeal, mm-hmm. but where the party also wants to change the status quo while they're appealing. So I'm challenging a federal policy, right? A lower court rejects my challenge, but I want the courts to block the policy while I appeal that decision. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that like this requires a pretty high showing because you lost blow and you're trying to convince the appeals court not only that they're likely to rule for you, but that you're going to be harmed if they don't sort of adjust that. You can't wait, basically, for the case to get mm-hmm. all the way back to the Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. Before 1980, the way the Supreme Court dealt with almost all of these cases was that the term is in chambers was to have individual justices deal with emergency applications based on sort of geographic divisions. Mm -hmm. So every part of the country has a circuit justice who's responsible for applications that come from that part of the country. And it really is the rise of the death penalty after the Supreme Court reinstates it in Mm -hmm. 1976 that precipitates this fundamental shift where instead of having individual justices resolve these applications, which they usually did with oral argument as you know, in chambers by themselves, um, they often write opinions as circuit justices. Now the court starts this sort of norm of referring applications for emergency relief to the full court if they're remotely divisive. And even though the full court is going to resolve the application, there's no simultaneous move to provide anywhere near the same process that circuit justices were providing. So there are no more arguments on emergency applications. The court does not think it's appropriate to write opinions respecting emergency applications. And Jim, the shift really happens in the early 1980s, but no one notices because almost all of the cases it happens in are these 11th hour fights over impending executions Mm -hmm. where everyone's assumption is that this is a unique set of procedural accommodations to deal with the unique problem posed by capital punishment. Mm-hmm. And so it's you know it's a death is different kind of reaction. It's really only starting in the mid 2010s that we see the Supreme Court embrace some of the same pathologies. So full court review, no oral argument, no opinion in contexts that go well beyond whether, you know, state A can execute prisoner Smith. Jim, I mean, without downplaying the gravity of a capital case, usually those cases are not about broader legal implications on a statewide or federal basis, right? Usually those cases are about whether a particular prisoner can or cannot be executed. In contrast, what starts happening in the mid-2010s is the justices apply the same rules, the same norms, the same standards to Obama's clean power plan, to Trump's immigration policies, where now these unsigned, unexplained orders are having massive statewide or nationwide effects in context in which the court is not explaining why it's intervening to adjust the status quo. Steve, could you just come back and quote the decision by Justice O'Connor, Souter, and Kennedy, wherein they you talked about unsigned orders. Tell us, tell us that the, the, the famous statement that they made about describing the importance of 
a decision should be in writing. It should be clear. It should be before bef- the public, before everyone, to to read and to understand the, the rationale. C- do you recall the that that quote from uh, the three justices? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's from Casey, and it's something to the effect of a judicial decision with no principled justification would be no judicial act at all. Right. You know, the idea there. I mean, Jim, this this ought not to be controversial. The idea is that what makes the court a court is its ability to provide principled justification yes. for its decision making. Not because you or I are going to agree necessarily with the principles the justices are espousing, but because at least hopefully we will agree that they are principles. Yes. And you know, Justice Justice Barrett touched on this theme in an April 2022 speech she gave at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library. She said, you know, before you judge us based on the bottom lines of our decisions, read the opinion. But what's happening increasingly is that there are big cases with massive impacts where the justices are upsetting the status quo, and yet there's no opinion to read. This is a very controversial trend, which is seems to be occurring at the Supreme Court. Now, you mentioned that during the eight years of the George W. Bush administration, the eight years of the Barack Obama administration, so 16 years in total, those two administrations sought on eight occasions— shadow docket kind of decisions. If I'm not mistaken, the yep. su- the Supreme Court agreed on four of those eight. So in 16 years, two different administrations uh, of two different parties, those, pre- those administrations submitted eight such requests. Then comes the Trump administration, and in four years, his administration required uh, requested 41. Eight over 16 years, four, 41 over four years. How did this happen? Yeah, I mean, I think th- this is, yeah, I mean, this is the sort of the, the, the thrust of, of chapter four of the book. I mean, I think the the Trump administration found out pretty early on in specific regard to the second iteration of the travel ban that the Supreme Court was going to be all too willing to grant emergency relief without explanations in context that would give President Trump policy victories, even if not legal victories. So from the second iteration of the travel ban to the border wall, to a series of controversial asylum policies, to the transgender military service ban, there are all of these controversial Trump era policies that the Supreme Court allows Trump to carry out for years on end after lower courts had blocked them without ever saying that those policies were legal. And, you know, I think there are those who are, you know, more sympathetic to President Trump and his policies who would say some of that was a reaction to perceived overreaching by lower courts. The problem, Jim, is that none of those decisions were explained. And so there's no point where the court actually says we're reacting to overreaching by lower courts. There's no point where the court says, you know, in general, lower courts should defer to the president on immigration policy or lower court should be wary about issuing these kinds of injunctions against executive branch action. And what that because there are none of those opinions, because the court never writes it down, the justices are then free when President Biden comes to office to be nowhere near as deferential, right? Because they can, you know, instead of granting relief, they can deny relief without contravening terms of opinions that they didn't write. One of the things that the book really tries to demonstrate in detail is that you can look at all of these cases as abstractions and come up with plausible justifications for the court's decisions if you look at them in retail. But when you put the whole data set together, 
it really starts to look problematic because the court looks inconsistent. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Because the same principles that ought to have counseled in favor of or against relief end up hashing out differently depending upon the partisan valence of the dispute. And you know, that's not to say that the court is voting for partisan reasons. The problem is that because there's no rationale, because there's no opinion, there's nothing to disabuse the court's critics of charging that the justices are behaving that way, right? Like there's 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 nothing um, to sort of defend the court from these charges of inconsistency. In those cases where there isn't a, a written opinion of the a majority opinion, have any of those have any of those cases provided precedent? Even though there 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 isn't uh, there isn't a, a written opinion which would explain how the justices came to that conclusion? Have any of them been used as precedent? Yes, and this is where things get even more complicated. So in the context of a series of 2021 rulings about COVID mitigation measures, the court started to treat unsigned, unexplained orders expressly as precedent. So there were examples of the court vacating lower court rulings and sending the case back to the lower court for reconsideration in light of an unsigned, unexplained order. There's one especially, I think, egregious example, a case called Gateway City Church, where the court blocked Santa Clara, Santa Clara County's COVID restrictions and in the process chastised the Ninth Circuit, the Federal Appeals Court in San Francisco, because in the court's words, the result was clearly dictated by a prior order the court had handed down, Jim, where there was no majority opinion. So, mm-hmm. yes, I mean, you know, as bad as it is for the court to be upsetting the status quo without explaining itself, I think where things really started to run off the rails was when the court started insisting to lower courts that the unsigned, unexplained orders were nevertheless precedents these lower courts and government officials were somehow bound to follow. Let's come back to the justices, because, I mean, the justices, of course, are also reading the newspapers and following the popular discussion about the controversial nature of the shadow docket. You have Justice Alito, on the one hand, taking one position. You have Justice Kagan, on the other hand, taking another position. And then most recently, you've had Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett weighing in. Give us a sense of these four justices who seem to have taken public positions on the the shadow docket. Give us a sort of a state of play at this point between uh, these four justices, Justice Kagan, Alito, Kavanaugh, and Barrett, and where they stand publicly on the shadow docket. Sure. I mean, so there was this really remarkable two-month period in the fall of 2021 where, you know, the sort of the shadow docket discourse really got into the mainstream and the justices followed it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it started with the court's ruling in the Texas six-week abortion ban case, the the so-called SB8 case, on September 1st, 2021, where in her dissent, the, the sort of the court refused to intervene to prevent Texas's ban from going into effect. And in her dissent, Justice Kagan was really the first justice to publicly criticize the conservatives in the majority for abusing the shadow docket as such. She even, I mean, she talks about the shadow docket. She uses the term. Mm-hmm. That really, I think, helped that opinion and the sort of the result, the fact that, you know, through 400 and some odd words, the court made abortion effectively unavailable in the nation's second largest state. 
you know, nine months before Dobbs, really, I think, galvanized public reaction to the shadow docket, so much so that at the end of the month, at the end of September, Justice Alito goes to Notre Dame Law School and gives a speech where he defends what he calls the emergency docket and where he accuses, you know, those who use the term shadow docket of using it as an attempt to sort of delegitimize the court and to portray the court as some sort of nefarious cabal. And what's remarkable about that speech is it's only a couple weeks later in late October that there's a case involving a challenge to the COVID vaccination mandate for healthcare workers in Maine, where the justices refuse to block the Maine COVID vaccination mandate. And there's this concurrence by Justice Barrett that was joined by Justice Kavanaugh. It's really only a paragraph Mm -hmm. where Barrett says something to the effect of just because a party has met our typical criteria for emergency relief doesn't mean we have to grant it. And she suggests that, like, the justices actually have discretion to decide when they will and won't grant emergency relief, even to parties who deserve it. She doesn't tell us, Jim, how that discretion is going to be exercised. She doesn't tell us why she's not exercising her discretion in that case. But if you actually track the court's shadow docket behavior, which, you know, I'm, I'm nerdy enough to do, mm-hmm. that really does seem to have been an inflection point where since that decision, a case called Doe's versus Mills, the court has been a little more reluctant to intervene. We've seen fewer grants of emergency relief. We've seen even when there are grants of emergency relief, they haven't typically split the court right down ideological lines. And, you know, I think what that reflects is that the justices are in very different places about Mm -hmm. this behavior, where Alito sees no problem at all, where Kagan thinks it's highly problematic, and where Barrett and Kavanaugh are amenable to at least some of the criticisms, even if they're not willing to, to go all the way. I think, you know, Jim, that's probably pretty reflective of the court as a whole and not just in the context of emergency relief, but it also, I think, reflects a deeper point, which is so important to the book and such, I think, a point that's missing from a lot of our discourse about the Supreme Court. This is visible here because we're getting these separate statements by the justices, right? There's a lot about the Supreme Court. You you would miss all of this. You would miss this dialogue if you viewed the court only as the sum total of its merits decisions, right? If you, if you thought that the way to understand the Supreme Court was to look at the affirmative action ruling yes. and the website ruling and the student loan ruling, because there's a lot of, again, like the moral of the story here, there's a lot of really telling, important, revealing stuff about the court and about the justices that happens in the context of these you know, unsigned orders. Is it unprecedented for us, the public, to sort of be sitting in the sidelines and seeing four justices of the Supreme Court, Kagan, Alito, Kavanaugh, Coney, kind of airing Supreme Court dirty linen, if you will, in public. Uh, usually, wasn't there a time when when those sort of discussions were held behind closed doors and highly discreet, and we, the public, were not prized of these differing opinions on fundamental jurisprudence uh, considerations? Is, is this something unprecedented in modern times? Jim, I don't think it's unprecedented. I think it is. it has been a while. And so, you know, I think part of what happened is that really from the late 1960s, early 1970s, until about a decade ago, maybe about seven or eight years ago, we had a pretty stable court. I mean, yes, we had contentious confirmation fights 
And, you know, we had lots of drama over the direction the court was heading in. But, Jim, from the late 60s until, you know, about seven, eight years ago, the court had a meaningful middle, whether it was tended by Justice Stewart or Justice Powell or Justice Mm O'Connor or ultimately Justice Kennedy. And I think, you know, during that era, yes, what you suggest would have been unheard of, right? Mm -hmm. We would not have expected the justices to go air their dirty laundry in public. Before that, I think it was a lot more common. You know, there's, uh, there's, you know, a lot of references to the sort of the quartet of Justices Black, Douglas, Frankfurter, and Jackson mm. as, you know, scorpions in a bottle, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? They, they served together for 14 years, and they really had some nasty, visible, you know, fights with each other, even though politically they were very, very much aligned in a lot of cases. Yes. Um, I think the broader point here is that, if anything, the sort of the stayedness of the Supreme Court was the historical exception. Because it was understood, it was accepted, it was the norm, right, before the late 60s, early 70s, that the court was not a partisan institution, Jim, but a political one. Mm -hmm. That the court was involved in, you know, an inner branch dialogue, a public conversation, not necessarily about the results it was reaching, but about the shape of its docket, about the role it was supposed to play in our society. And, you know, the justices used to give more public speeches You know, Chief Justice Berger in 1975 started the tradition of year-end reports as a way of basically sort of, you know, telling everyone what the court's been up to and what he thinks the court needs from Congress. Mm -hmm. And so I think, you know, to sort of tie threads together, part of how we got here, part of how we got to a court that has all of this power and very little meaningful accountability is those understandings have fallen by the wayside. And the institutional leverage that Congress used to assert, the interbranch dynamic that used to help keep the court in its lane is really sort of completely missing these days, regardless of who's in charge of Congress, whether it's Democrats or Republicans. So that, you know, to me, if we actually put the court into its proper context, we look at the court holistically as an institution, we don't necessarily see the problem caused by a conservative majority, right? So much as I think we see the problem caused by an institution that is beholden to no one. Steve, can we just come back to the Texas SB-8 law? Now, again, that Texas SB-8 law was otherwise known as the heartbeat law, which effectively precluded an abortion taking place in the state of Texas once a heartbeat was detected, and a heartbeat can be detected in a fetus at six weeks, if I'm not mistaken. What shocks me is that when the... U.S. Supreme Court in in its shadow docket had to consider this request for uh, an injunction. Roe versus Wade was the law of the land. Roe versus Wade had not been overturned. Yet the justices decided to let the Texas law stand, which even to me as a layperson, looking at SB 8 versus Roe versus Wade, how could you possibly see them as consistent? That, to me, that was a, that was an especially shocking decision, particularly to be based in the shadow docket. It seemed to fly right in the face of Roe versus Wade, and Roe versus Wade was still the law of the land for another nine months. Am I, am I missing something here? <laughs> no, I mean, I, I, think, I think you're touching on exactly what was, you know, reflected in public reaction, which is that, you know, I think for the first time, 
the court's refusal to intervene in the SB8 case drove home to the public why the shadow docket is such a big deal. And so, you know, lawyers could say, well, actually, these earlier cases were almost as important, right? The clean power plan being blocked in an unsigned, unexplained order. The travel ban, right? The the border wall. I mean, you can pick earlier rulings and say those were pretty important too. But the sort of the the immediate impact of the court's non-intervention in the Texas case, I think, really brought a lot of previously unavailable attention to why this stuff matters. Mm-hmm. And and Jim, and I think, you know, part of what, I mean, I, I was already well along in the book when that happened. It was, in one sense, I think, really powerful to be sort of going through that in real time while trying, you know, while writing a book that was designed to do exactly what that decision did which was to make the shadow docket accessible and real and to make its impact visible to folks who aren't necessarily spending their days and nights watching the Supreme Court very carefully. Could we just come back to the to the flow of cases on an annual basis to the Supreme Court? Now, if I if memory serves correctly, I think in the book you mentioned that uh, between 5 and 6,000 cases a year end up at the Supreme Court. Yet, only less than 60 end up being picked, if you will, by the justices to be part of their merits docket. But So all of the other 4,950 cases that they don't decide to bring to their merits docket, what happens to them? Yeah, I mean, so in all of those cases, the, the last decision by a lower court ends up being the one that stands. Mm-hmm. And that might not seem like that big a deal, but think about the power that that gives the justices. Mm-hmm. So you're a Supreme Court justice, a federal appeals court or a state Supreme Court has issued a decision where you, you know, you, the person, really like the decision. You like the policy result that the decision produces but you, the justice who has your methodological commitments, doesn't you know can't get behind the rationale, just can't buy the logic of the decision. Mm-hmm. Well, you could you know in a world in which you had to hear that appeal, you would have to grapple with the fact that your legal principles don't support that result. In a world in which you can deny certiorari and just let that decision stand without any imprimatur from you, you don't. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, and that's you know just one of the ways in which this kind of discretion over the court's docket empowers the court and gives the court the ability to pick and choose cases, to pick and choose issues, um, and to thereby you know decide only what the justices want to decide and nothing else. And you know one other piece of this, the the rule which actually isn't written down anywhere, is that it takes four votes to grant certiorari, so four of the nine justices. What that meant until 2020 was that the Democratic appointees, if they wanted to, could force the Republican appointees to take up cases like that. Mm -hmm. One of the ways in which Justice Ginsburg's death and Justice Barrett's confirmation to replace her changes the dynamic is the Democratic appointees now can't force a case onto the court's Mm -hmm. docket by themselves. Every case the court hears requires at least one of the Republican appointees to want to hear it. And that just, you know, radically changes the shape of the court's docket. It radically changes the types of cases the court is hearing Mm -hmm. in ways that we just don't talk about, where you'll see all of these statistical claims at the end of a Supreme Court term about how often the court was unanimous or about which justices agreed with which justices when. Jim, none of those accounts 
deal with the denominator problem, which is that the denominator is controlled entirely by one side of the court. Mm -hmm. Steve, why has there been such a steady decline in the number of, on an annual basis, of cases getting onto the merits docket? We're down to less than 60. And it wasn't that long ago when we were well up over 100. Why has there been such a steady decline? Because the number of cases that actually come before the Supreme Court continues to increase, yet the number that they're actually deciding in the merits docket has been steadily shrinking. Why is that? It's a good question that no one other than the justices knows the answer to. <laughs> but I mean, we should—I mean, we should—we should make this clear. I mean, so the big drop-off happened after 1988, and 1988 was a big year because that's when Congress basically gave the court discretion over almost all of the rest of its docket. Mm -hmm. And so it's after 1988 that the court's docket drops from 150 cases a term to, as you say, to the 90s. But if you look at the data, the, the drop-off hasn't slowed, right? So it was in the 90s in the 1990s. It was in the 80s in the 2000s. It was in the 70s for most of the 2010s. And now we're below 60 for the fourth term in a row when the court, Jim, before that hadn't been below 60 since 1864. Hmm. Part of what I think is going on is what we've been talking about, which is now the grants are coming only from one side of the court. I see. The justices take only the cases they want to, right? They can be incredibly choosy and no one complains. And, you know, the result is a very, very skewed and small merits docket. Just put this in context. The court has decided this term 58 decisions with, you know, after oral argument with signed decisions of the court. 57 of those were cases the justices chose to hear. Mm -hmm. So only one of the 58 cases the court decided this term was a case it had to decide. One of the things that's missing, right, one of the things that's disappeared is of those 58 cases, only one was a direct appeal of a state criminal conviction even though those cases used to be, you know, the heartland of the court's docket. With this shift, with this decline, the court's role just keeps getting more and more, how do I say, political, mm -hmm. because the justices now get to basically say, we are going to decide only these questions and only these cases and nothing else. And folks who like the answers the justices are giving in these cases might not think that's a problem. I guess institutionally, to me, it's a symptom of a broader disease that the court doesn't feel beholden to lower courts who want more guidance, to you know government actors who want more guidance, to legislatures right who expect the court to you know provide more clarity. And when a court can basically do whatever it wants, whether it's through you know how few cases it grants on the merits docket or how busy it is on the emergency docket, that is a court that whether you like the bottom lines or not, is to me, from a separation of powers perspective, remarkably unhealthy. It seems as though there has been a, a shift as Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett, reading the tea leaves, seem to have pulled back a little bit with regard to the shadow docket. Has your argument reached their ears as it did the ears of Justice Alito? I don't know if they're specifically familiar with what I've written. I, I do think that they have clearly been reacting to what's in the ether mm -hmm. when it comes to sort of public concerns about the shadow docket, that they're reacting to, you know, the critiques of their colleagues like Justice Kagan. Um, but, you know, just to sort of drive home the point, you know, 
we're we're speculating at best, Jim, because they haven't told us. <laughs> and so, you know, as with everything else, we really are left to sort of wonder why the justices are acting the way they are in ways that really create serious unpredictability. Unpredictability that matters if you are government actors, if you are lawyers, if you are lower courts, because you just can't know what the court's going to do when the court isn't telling you why it did what it did the other day. Let's come back to the use by an administration of these emergency orders. Again, George W. Bush in his eight years in, in office there were four from his administration. Barack Obama, during his eight years in office, there were four. Trump, there were 41. Tell us about the Biden administration. Has the Biden administration sought this kind of protection, or do they simply read the tea leaves of the ideological bent, if you will, of the of the Supreme Court being probably against them, that the Biden administration wouldn't wish to pursue emergency orders through uh, through the shadow docket. W- any numbers from the uh, Biden administration as compared to the three preceding administrations? Yeah, I mean, so as, as, as we're recording this, the, the Biden administration has asked the court for emergency relief a total of 11 times in two and a half years. So, you know, that's way up compared to the Bush and Obama administrations and, you know, less than half of what the Trump administration did. And I think that's, you know, a reflection of exactly as you suggest, uh, an administration that is more skeptical that it's going to find a friendly audience in mm-hmm. the Supreme Court, right? That sort of doesn't see the Supreme Court as likely to be as sympathetic as the Trump administration would have. But, you know, Jim, among those 11, the government has won six of those. And in the other five, in two of those, the government ultimately won on the merits. So even though the court didn't intervene in favor of the Biden administration at the emergency relief stage, it did ultimately side with the administration when the case came back. So six out of 11, eight out of 11, it's a pretty good track record, especially Mm -hmm. when you consider that it's a conservative majority in a Democratic administration. And I think what that reflects is that you know this is a genie that to some degree cannot be fully put back yes. in the bottle. Yes. And that, you know, because even with Kavanaugh and Barrett apparently moderating their behavior, it has now become so sort of normalized for parties to seek emergency relief. We're, mm-hmm. we're seeing emergency applications, Jim, now that we would never have seen 10 years ago, because even when the court denies relief, it's never chastising the parties for asking. It's never suggesting that these requests are inappropriate. Lawyers are going to be lawyers where, you know, if the court suggests that it's willing to entertain novel requests for emergency applications and for emergency relief, parties are going to make them. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a problem that the court really hasn't grappled with, which is how its own behavior has enabled much more aggressive litigation behavior by parties in ways that are really hard to get out of, really hard to sort of resist if you are justices who might be sympathetic on the merits to the arguments that these parties are advancing. Mm -hmm. Well, I I would agree with you. I think the genie is out of the bottle. And uh, while the Trump administration's 41 such uh, attempts to use the shadow docket uh, may have been off the charts, 11 is certainly, 11 is almost three times what uh, the last Democratic president Re- uh, requested in his eight years in office. So I agree with you. It sounds as though the genie's out of the bottle. Successive administrations, Democrat or Rep- Republican, are going to to use this device. And as you say, if they're not being chastised by the Supreme Court, what do they have to lose? 
And the answer is they have nothing to lose, but the court has a lot to lose. Mm -hmm. The more that the court, I think, comes to grips with that and the more that the court, I think, accepts that, you know, the these kinds of departures from regular order are actually damaging to the court's institutional credibility. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, right, the more this the more the court will be resistant to these efforts, at least to this point, the the results are a bit of a mixed bag. Steve, I found the book very accessible. I found it a fascinating read and a fascinating read in part because it's so rare that the the curtains of the Supreme Court are sort of pulled back for us to get a sense of the inner workings and the the chemistry uh, among particularly between Kagan and Alito which both of whom are at opposite ends of the uh, the ideological spectrum, I would say. But I, I found your book fascinating, first with the history of the Supreme Court, and then most recently just pulling the curtain back and giving us a sense of the um, the inner workings of of how these these men and women uh, interface with each other to to come to a decision. Is there a sequel in the offing to <laughs> Shadow Court? Is Shadow Court Two coming down the pike? I mean, that might sub to something would be up to the Supreme Court. <laughs> um, I, I will say that, I mean, I, I, I really enjoyed writing the book and I've really enjoyed, you know, how it's been received. It is, as you might imagine, a little tricky to be writing about something as it's happening. And, yes. you know, I think I, I would love whatever my next book is, I would love for it to be a little more of a closed universe <laughs> topics I'm covering versus, you know, having the court do fairly major things that affected, you know, the sort of analytical frame of the book as I'm writing the book. So I would love to keep writing about the court. I mean, I really do care deeply yes. about raising public understanding and public awareness of the court. It's part of why I have Supreme Court newsletter through Substack called One First. I, I might be inclined in the next book to take a bit more of a historical approach and mm put where we are today into an even more comprehensive historical context about how the court operated historically vis-a-vis -vis the other branches. Well, I think you and your book have played a great role in shining a spotlight on this, this sort of quasi-secret out there. I would dare say that you've kept the issue alive and broadened the audience for this issue, that, uh, that probably all of the nine justices have been made aware of. And we think that it, it it appears, certainly through inference, that two of them may have moderated their position because of public concern about this, uh, about the shadow docket. So kudos to you. So uh, uh, I, I'm all for shadow, shadow docket number two. I <laughs> certainly enjoy shadow, shadow docket number one. Well, Steve, in the remaining few minutes of the podcast, what are your closing thoughts for our listeners? Again, a very accessible read. And for any of our listeners who haven't yet read it, I thoroughly commend it to your attention. This is a book written by a lawyer for lawyers, but most importantly, for non-lawyers too. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, I'm glad you feel that way, because that, that's, that's really what I was aspiring to. The best I can say, Jim, is that whether it's through this book or through other people's writings, I really do hope, I, there's such a tendency among, in our current political climate to put everything into tribalist terms, yes. where things are up or down based on whether or not they align with my partisan political preferences. And I really believe to the you know fiber of my being that that approach really exacerbates 
the sort of the our ability to talk about the Supreme Court coherently, because if everything is just about do we like this decision, do we not like this decision, we just sort of lose sight of the court's behavior overall, and it makes it look like every conversation about court reform is just sour grapes from the people who are losing. And I think, you know, my hope is that folks who read the book or don't read the book will take a sort of a half a step back and say, you know, one of the things we should be thinking about, we think about the Supreme Court, is if we could somehow ignore the bottom lines, do we think this is how any institution that has this kind of power in our society ought to be acting? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because my sense is that there are lots of things about the current court that divorced from the results the justices are reaching, we'd actually be able to build a fair amount of consensus on, aren't especially healthy. Mm -hmm. Um, And reasserting this idea that the separation of powers is just as important as the separation of parties, I think is a really important step toward fixing a lot of the dysfunction that we have in our government writ large and not just in the Supreme Court today. Well, Steve, how can our listeners follow you and your work? Well, I mean, so I am, uh, at least for the moment, still on the artist formerly known as Twitter, um, <laughs> at Steve underscore Vladik. I'm also on threads at the same handle. Um, as I mentioned, I do have a weekly Supreme Court newsletter called One First, which folks can find at stevevladik.substack.com. Those are probably the best places to find me. Well, again, Steve, thanks so much for joining us today, taking time from your busy schedule, and for shedding light on the uh, the Supreme Court that makes decisions that that affect all of us. And again, you've written a very accessible book that I thoroughly recommend to all of my listeners. Thanks, Tim. It was a pleasure to chat with you. Look forward to having you back. Thanks. And for our listeners, today's episode is number 435. The San Francisco Experience podcast is carried on 18 platforms, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, with listeners in 60 countries. We were recently recognized by Feedspot as one of the top 25 California news podcasts. This has been Jim Herlihy for the San Francisco Experience, coming to you from San Francisco.